0: This is the Yorkshire Voice Newscast, brought to you by Leeds Trinity University.
1: This is the Yorkshire Voice Newscast, where we take a closer look at the biggest stories across the region. I'm Martha Sanders, and I'll be joined this afternoon by our reporter, Ricardo Trono.
2: Hi, Martha. Good afternoon to you and all of our listeners. Good
1: afternoon, Ricardo. On today's show, we'll be exploring the dramatic rise and fall of the European Super League. And we'll be looking at why so many young people have been seeking help from homeless charities during the pandemic. And of course, here in Yorkshire, we are celebrating National Tea Day by having a look at how you do your brew. We've got all that and more coming up on Newscast. So we're starting with one of the biggest stories this week, maybe even this month. And for many people, it's probably the biggest story of the year. Forget coronavirus, it's the European Super League. Later, we'll be talking to ex-Leeds United player Tony Di But first, Ricardo is going to fill us in on the latest twists and turns in the tale.
2: The European Super League project is now doomed to come to its end after just two days of widespread uproar and controversy all over Europe. Let's now relieve these two days step by step, starting from Sunday afternoon through the hectic hours of Monday and Tuesday, and up until this morning, where Juventus, Atletico Madrid and the two Milan clubs, Internazionale and AC Milan, have confirmed that we draw. We'll be going over all of this through the voices of some of the many people that have been involved in the debate. Gary Neville, Michael Richards, Ralph Hassenhattel, Jurgen Klopp, James Milner, Pep Guardiola, Thomas Stockel, the Leeds United fan base, former Real Madrid president Ramon Calderon Ramos, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Cultural Secretary Oliver Dowden. It's
3: <laughs> a criminal act against football fans in this country. Make no mistake about it. This is the biggest sport in the world. This is the biggest sport in this country. And it's a criminal act against the fans. Simple as that. Deduct points, deduct their money and punish them. I can't understand after what they have built in Manchester with the local community, all the money they've spent with the, the women's, the men's, the kids, the grassroots, for them to want to pull away. I'm, I'm flabbergasted.
0: There were a lot of hours of negotiations inside the Premier League going on about the future and there was not one time speaking about the coming up Super League and suddenly it pops up and it means that there were some negotiations behind
3: the backgrounds and this is something that is for me unacceptable. The time has come now. Independent regulators stop these clubs having the power base. Enough is enough. Seriously, in the midst of a pandemic, an economic crisis, and these lot are having Zoom calls about breaking away and basically creating more greed. Joke. They're reasonable people, they're serious people. They don't do things just like this, they are not like this. They they will try to explain to me the
0: decision, definitely will understand the end. I don't know. But it's still not my decision. I coach the football team and I love doing that. You know, I think the players obviously have no say, so obviously the welcome we got to, to the ground tonight was, felt a bit unjust obviously, we we have we're here to play football and, and, and now control of it but I don't like it and you know hopefully it doesn't
3: happen.
2: Well that's it there's no to play for is there? You know you you earn the right to be, come from like lower leagues to play you like to Manchester City and Liverpool and this. But if this league comes along then it's just gonna not go in it, it'll, it'll all disappear. The sport
3: is not a sport when the relation between the effort and the success, the effort and reward doesn't exist don't exist. So it's not a sport so it's not a sport of the success is already guaranteed it's not a sport and it doesn't matter if you lose i don't think it right that they should be somehow dislocated uh, from their hometowns, home cities uh, taken and turned into international brands and commodities to just circulate the planet this is as much part of our national heritage as our great stately homes our galleries our museums our our theatres our cathedrals and we, as a government, will do whatever it takes to step up to protect it. We played in Champions League, we left our heart and soul on Wembley Ground in the in the semi-final and this is what this game is all about. And this club here is a club who loves competition and it's a very competitive club and this was what excites me and why I'm so happy to be here.
4: This is going to kill football if it go, goes on, uh, I hope not. But regardless if this is
3: a success or not, the the harm has been already done. And these six sets of owners in this country, and obviously the other ones in Europe, have misread this situation badly. I can't wait for fans to be back in the stadium, because there has to be a concerted, organised, mobilised, strategic effort to change now.
1: So, that's the story so far. Thanks, Ricardo. But what will this mean for football going forward? Earlier today, I caught up with ex-Leeds United player Tony Di to find out his reaction to these tumultuous events.
0: Well, certainly it was a a surprise, I think, to to absolutely everyone. Um, However, this has been bubbling up for a good few years and the the big clubs are always looking to to maximise uh, the profits. But this is a spectacular own goal, but on the day when it was announced, it was a a huge shock. And I I think you then suddenly realise that the the, the game that you love and all the things that are good about it was was in jeopardy.
1: Yeah, so we've really seen fans come out and mobilise and, you know, really make some change happen. Have you been behind the fans in this?
0: Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, I've been with the fans. And I think what is really important uh, is that I don't quite understand how the owners of these clubs don't realise they're just custodians of a uh, fantastic, famous football club that is really owned by the fans because without them, most clubs are absolutely nothing. And as, as, a, as a former player, you know, it was all about the fans and the passion uh, and it really is important that, you know, they're taking taking into complete consideration. And what I saw was they were just disregarded. So uh, it was, you know, delightful to see them all come out and show that sort of, uh, you know, a, a passion and, and voice their opinions and and there is only one way that then the club has to react and that's to, uh, you know, to obviously to to pull out eventually. But yeah, it, it was brilliant that the fans, uh, you know, were heard in that way. But more concerning was, you know, how we got to that point in the first place.
1: Yeah. So you're a former player. Can you imagine what it would have been like if you were one of the players on one of these teams that got put in the Super League? How do you think they will have been feeling about all this?
0: Well, I had huge sympathy for not only the players, the coaching staff, the managers, everyone at the club. And you look at you know where these decisions were made. Well, it was none of them that were involved in it. It's right at the very, very top. Uh, and those ones then unfortunately left their, their players and managers uh, to bear the brunt uh, of what was to come. So on Monday night, I was at Ellen Road, um, you know, doing some, some interviews, doing the co-commentaries. And I was down by the touchline, seeing the players and managers go past. And, and Jurgen Klopp, Unfortunately, he's the one that had to you know, answer everything, and he knew absolutely nothing about it. So, uh, as a player, I can only imagine it's a huge distraction. It's something that you really don't want. And then you looked at the game last night with uh, with Chelsea. You know, Thomas Tuchel was, again, getting the same sort of treatment. The fans were actually going crazy. And as a player, yes, you are professional. You want to go out there and you want to concentrate 100% on what you're doing. But uh, it's very hard when something like that is in the background.
1: Yeah, indeed. And obviously, you know, these decisions have come from the top and the players and the fans have now really made a difference. And it's, you know, most people would agree it's good news that this Super League has now been disbanded. The six clubs have now left. What do you think this means for football going forward? Do you think we'll see any more change?
0: I'd like to think so, because I think now is the time to, to try and uh, rebalance things, to try and make things better. Um I think certainly in Europe, UEFA obviously are trying to, you know, alter the Champions League, which I, I think is going through very shortly. But but what these you know big clubs uh, want uh, is just more and more cash, and that's where the thing I think has to to stop. The owners need to understand that uh, you know it's very much these teams are all about community and and, and the fans that they you know they serve really. Uh, and I'm not sure a lot of them see it that way. They just see the dollar signs. But I think the problem started many many years ago when we kind of sold our soul. Uh, to, to the world with football rights and club ownership, so we have a long way to row back, you know, from the commercialisation. I think of the Premier League. Uh, hopefully, we've now got to a point where we can at least start, you know, getting back uh, back to what we all want and love, and that's a really competitive local football side that we uh, we are proud of and we cherish. And uh, you know, it's a competition that's a level playing field, and you know, anyone might be able to win the title. And anyone can get relegated you know, through the league. So uh, that's what it's all about.
1: So do you think overall this might actually end up being a good thing? It might act as a sort of reset button, if you like.
0: Yes, for sure. Because now what is quite clear from what's happened is that you have to listen to the fans. Yeah, They have to be more involved. And if you look at the, I suppose, the big side that didn't uh, go into the Champions League, and that was the Bundesliga side Bayern Munich. Now they are all owned 51% by fans. So... Um, yeah, it's pretty clear they've already uh, worked that one out here in England. We haven't quite got to that point, so uh, let's uh, hope we can.
1: Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if we do end up moving more towards the sort of German model of things. And then finally as well, football is not without its issues. We've obviously had a lot about racism in football and you know, nothing's ever really been concretely done. Do you think this sort of momentum that's been created by fans could actually be the attention could be turned to other issues in football?
0: And that's a really good point. And that was highlighted by Patrick Bamford on Monday night. And um, that was the most powerful thing for me is that uh, as soon as you, you know, hurt someone financially, they will scream from the rooftops. But of course, when we're talking about racism, you know that sort of uh, reaction uh, doesn't come. Uh, and that's exactly what we need. We're, we're, we're calling for that. I really hope things do certainly change, but I think we've got to a point that the the, the greed is just uh, just got too much, uh, and now everyone is thinking this has to stop. And I hope other things like, you know, racism certainly should be right at the top of the list of, uh, you know, things that we can go and uh, make sure we improve a great deal.
1: That was Tony Dorigo there. Now onto a topic that is affecting many young people across Yorkshire. Yesterday, Bradford-based homelessness charity Centrepoint released a report saying that during the pandemic, calls from young people had gone up by a third. They also reported a 117% increase in 16 to 24-year-olds claiming benefits, a 15% increase in youth unemployment, and a 40% increase in demand for mental health services. I caught up with Abigail Wayman, a housing officer at a homeless hostel in Bradford, to find out how the pandemic has been affecting homeless people and service provision. Definitely
4: um, affected people in lots of ways. Um, kind of groups um that people can go to you know there's kind of drug drug and alcohol like dropping groups that you know around the corner from the hostel which people have benefit going to on a weekly basis you know there's a bit of a community there they'll have kind of tea and have like cake and things with people and just have a big chat you know they haven't been I mean they're starting up again um as of this week hopefully But, you know, they've not been going on. And it's kind of a social thing for a lot of people. You know, we've had to put a stop to house meetings at the hostel where we'd get together once a week, kind of discuss what's going on. So everything has become a lot more formal. And I think a lot of the people, especially at the hostel, especially because we've had some people that were here before the pandemic, they've really struggled to adapt.
1: The figures that have come out this morning are specifically about young people. Mm. So you have young people coming into your yes. hostel. Um, why do you think so many young people are struggling with their living situations at the moment? And why do you think the pandemic has led to more young people seeking help from homeless charities?
4: People are losing all kinds of social interactions that they'd usually have, all support things, you know, if they went to kind of youth engagement, if they were in volunteering or anything like that everything like any training, things like that, they've all kind of reduced or put a stop to, you know, and it's all, um, you know, council funding, everything like that. There's so many different factors um, which kind of are like the reason that people might access help. And, yeah, I think you take kind of one thing away or, you know, the pandemic's just um, completely altered life and how every, you know, every service has had to adapt and every person's had to adapt. And I think it is just definitely a struggle for, for younger people. I think for younger people, it's probably, you know, for lack of a better term, they're very new to it. You know, there's people that have kind of been around the block. They're aware um, of how the council works. They're aware of how services work. Um, you know, they, they know kind of what to do. They know what certain things mean. Um, whereas a younger person may come in and it's completely new to them. They've never been homeless before. Some of them never lived independently before and they're kind of thrown into this situation.
1: And do you think there's enough support out there or do you think more could be done?
4: Um, it's difficult. I mean, you know, the the support is there. There are some amazing organisations, you know, in Bradford, West Yorkshire and beyond. Um, I think there's always more that can be done. But again, you know, with funding, you know, the cost, the cost in general of the pandemic and, you know, there's not always that funding there for services. A lot of, you know, a lot of amazing charities work year by year funding. And, you know, there's always that chance that that funding may not be there the year after. But I think kind of the work that people at the hostel and all the external agencies that I've you know, I've, I've dealt with over this time, you know, they've all just been amazing with how they've really tried to adapt to a new way of living and still try and make it as person-centred as they possibly can without
1: having that person contact. And in terms of, you know, all the challenges that everyone's been facing in terms of social distancing, hygiene, yeah. how do you manage things like that at a hostel?
4: It's quite difficult because it is their home at the end of the day. And it, you know, to say to someone, you need to wear full PPE in your home, it doesn't feel right, it makes people, you know, not be able to relax. It doesn't make them feel like it is their
1: home. And finally, how has it been for the staff? How have you managed the challenges this year? Yeah,
4: I mean, I started working um, at the hostel kind of mid-pandemic. So for me, you know, there was no kind of adaptation or changes that was needed. I think the um, the only thing that I know a lot of my colleagues, um, we had so much more service user involvement. You know, we'd take them out places, even if it was just going for a coffee or something like that. And that whole, you know, that all had to stop. We've had to kind of rely on, um, you know, we're not able to take them out um, in our cars or anything like that and go out with them. A lot of appointments have to be, you know single person so i think that's definitely a struggle um not being able to be like there with them um to support them in appointments more recently especially with the nice weather and things it feels a lot more um you know like a communal um house where everyone spends time together rather than people you know being in their own rooms or kind of engaging less um So, yeah, it's been it's been nice. It's been nice over the past kind of month or so as restrictions ease to see the changes come back to the hostel and it get a bit, you know, a bit more normal again.
1: That was Abigail Wayman there explaining all the different ways young people have been affected. And there are so many takeaways from that. You know, it's great. The restrictions are lifting and things are getting better, but there are so many things that will have long lasting effects as described there. And finally, on to something a bit lighter. It is National Tea Day today and of course here in Yorkshire we are very passionate about our brews so we have been asking people on the internet how they like their tea according to my poll tea with milk and sugar is the most popular combination although it's pretty tight with milk and no sugar personally I like a black tea with a slice of lemon if I'm feeling fancy but that does not seem like a popular option so we've got Ricardo here how do you like your tea
2: Hi, Marta. Um, I have to say, yeah, I'm, mean, despite perhaps, you know, uh, it not being quite orthodox, like you said, um, I also like it that way, so like black tea, you know, with a slice of lemon. And I have to say, with me, it's also a mental thing. You know, I wrote two dissertations with the tea, you know, with the lemon slice on my side at the table. So I think that it works quite well as well.
1: There we go. From our Italian correspondent there, the way I like it is the European style. And Ricardo, what do you think of the British people's obsession with tea? Uh,
2: I think personally, I wouldn't call it an obsession, so to say, but definitely the things I've realised in all these years I've been in the UK is that it's a big part of, you know, in this country of who you are. And uh, ever since i come to this country, I've started um, to become ever more interested in the types of tea that are available here. And I have to say, it's definitely easier to find more variety here than you might find elsewhere. And, and I remember when I was a child you know I, I'm born in Italy I grew up there and I would read about tea in books or see you know movie scenes with the tea there being a, pe- a big part of what the movie was all about so um, I started to become ever more fascinated about this and yeah I'm becoming a tea lover as well.
1: That's good to hear. Also in the poll we found out that Yorkshire tea is the most popular brand beating out twinings and pg chips although that may just be our demographic And according to the people of Twitter, the correct order is bag, then water, then milk. Although 20% of people put the water before the bag, which quite frankly, I think is deranged. Anyway, as well as it being National Tea Day today, it is also the birthday of both the Queen and Yorkshire's very own Charlotte Bronte. So happy birthday to those two. Despite my best efforts, I have been unable to find out how Charlotte liked her tea. However, The Queen's butler says, add milk after tea and never before. Stir back and forth and never touch the sides. And sip from the cup, do not slurp. So there you go. That's the advice from the top. However you like it, though, I hope everyone gets a chance to sit back and relax with a cup of tea today. And finally, we go live to Noah Hoffman to get an update on the weather. What's it like out there, Noah? Is it the perfect weather for some afternoon tea?
5: It is indeed, Martha. Martha. But I must have to say, I found your tea preference to be deranged, as you called um, people's preference of putting in hot water first, which admittedly is deranged too. I think the way to go always is um, with a tea bag, some milk, potentially sugar, I have sweetener, but you know, each their own. As for the weather, I am very cold outside. There are grey skies, it's all a bit moody and gloomy, which is a shame because the past few days have been quite beautiful here in Leeds and also across the county. It's 11 degrees, but tomorrow, sunnier days to come, it's set to be a high of 16 degrees. And then the following day on Friday, 18 degrees which in the UK is like probably the biggest deal ever as you can tell I'm not from here so I find 18 degrees um to still be cold but it's better than what we've got now um so that is your weather update looking forward to that sunshine coming out but for now I think we will be sticking with cups of tea.
1: Thanks for that Noah that's all we have time for today on Yorkshire Voice Newscast. We hope you've enjoyed taking a closer look at some of today's news stories with us. Join us again for newscast tomorrow at the same time and we'll be back at two o'clock with our hourly bulletins. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Goodbye.
0: This is Leeds Trinity University.